Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Controversies in Church History. This is Derek Taylor. And for our new series, the first series we've done in a while on a single topic, which we're going to go over several episodes, is going to be on the traditionalist movement from 1964 to the present. Now, I was planning on doing this series a little later, uh, maybe in another month or so, but Pope Francis forced my hand because of his issuing of Traditionis Custodes, his motu proprio, restricting the worship of the Latin, the uh, worship of the Mass in celebration of the Mass, I should say, uh, in the Old Rite, in the Old Roman Rite. And so our discussion and history of this movement is going to sort of take place against that background. And I want to point out just from the beginning here. I tend to do these these talks, these podcasts, in a fairly detached way. I tend to try to see both sides. I'm not a ranter or a raver. That will not change. But however, having said all this, I want to state up in front my, my opposition to what Pope Francis has done. I think uh, his motu proprio was, well, inappropriate. Uh, and this is going to be somewhat in defense, this whole series of the traditionalist movement. Uh, my sympathies are with them. And hopefully, uh, if you're listening to this and you don't know anything about them, maybe you're suspicious of them, I don't know. Probably most of the people listening will not be. But even if you're not, you'll learn about the background and where this push to have the, the, the Mass celebrated in the Old Rite comes from, why it's important, why it's not just about Latin or not just about the Mass itself, but it actually is a bigger import for the Church as a whole. And so it is going to be sympathetic. I will still criticize the traditionalist movement. I, you know me. I, I did my last series or last talk on the uh, charismatic renewal. And I have dear, dear friends who are part of it. I criticized it a lot, I think, but fairly. You will also get that in this series. Probably I have a whole episode on some of the problems with the traditionalist movement. It has them like most of them have. What also, of course, has that most movements in the church don't have, at least in the Western world, in Europe, the United States, the Americas, is the fact that it's growing. And in fact, just to talk about the movement today, it is mostly a younger movement, uh, mostly Francophone and Anglophone. Um, France and the United States are kind of the center. Uh, they're the, that's the, those are the two countries in which there are the most places where you can actually celebrate or, or go to a celebration of the Mass. According to the 1962 Roman Missal, which is the old missal that was in force uh, before uh, the new one was created after Vatican II, today most people are there just because of their attraction to the old Roman rite. Most of these people are younger. They don't know anything about Vatican II. This is why this would be a good series for them, so you can recommend it to your friends if they don't know anything about it, if they're younger. As we're going to see, um, this is different with an older generation who grew up in the shadow of Vatican II, uh, there are people in, who are in communion with the Church who accept the validity of Vatican II, who accept the validity of the, the new liturgy, but who still have reservations and objections to it. Um, and they're not coextensively overlapped, but I would say, venture to say, it's hard to say because there's not been a lot of 
serious, hard research uh, by uh, researchers done on this, but it's, I would say the younger generation has basically swamped the older one at this point. The Catholic traditionalist movement also includes groups outside, or at least not in full communion with Rome. Most notably, the Priestly Society of St. Pius X, the largest such group in the world. And if you know anything about the Catholic traditionalists at this point, you probably know they can kind of be voluble, especially online. There is a volatile and, yes, sometimes abusive and divisive traditionalist um, presence online, on social media, YouTube, Twitter, places like this. And so, there, yes, there are some problems with that. We'll get to that in the course of these, uh, of these uh, podcasts. There are also, however, a lot of reputable organizations uh, today that make up uh, what probably people don't know of is the, 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 uh, the traditionalist movement, which are much older uh, and which have a, a, an online presence as well. So it's not just crazy people on the Internet. <laughs> uh, if you're thinking that, it's not. The last thing to note about the movement today, uh, you call it that, is that it, it we probably have in our minds, perhaps, again, if you don't know much about that, but this movement or this section of the Catholic world, I don't know what to call it exactly, you might think it as being sort of clericalist or overly priestly in its orientation. It's my opinion, but I would have to say it's probably more lay-oriented than you'd think. Maybe even more, maybe more lay-oriented than priestly. Uh, I think this is movements driven partly by the desires, to put it another way, of laymen more than priests. And definitely, even if that's controversial, what's definitely not controversial, as you're going to see, is that in its origins, it's started by laymen. Uh, well before, several years before any priests get involved in this, it is laymen who fight to keep the Latin Mass from being abandoned by the Church. And just to clarify a couple of terms before we move forward here, when I say traditionalist, what I'm mostly referring to, as I've already kind of indicated, are those who prefer the celebration of, of the old Roman Missal, uh, the old, whatever you want to call it, colloquially the Latin Mass, I'll call it, I call it the old Roman Rite, because that's what it is, basically the usus antiquor in Latin. I will note, however, that the term traditionalist can be applied in lots of different ways. There's no one definition other than, other than being attached to the old right. And in fact, sometimes you'll hear people in secular media, media, sometimes in more progressive Catholic circles, refer to those who are supportive of things like, for example, traditional sexual morality as being quote-unquote traditionalists. So just keep in mind it has more meanings than this, even though I'm, I'm using it in that sense pretty much only. And I also want to make a distinction between traditionalists, Catholic traditionalists especially, and what I'm going to call trads. Because the term trad I had not heard until a, a few years ago and pretty much only online. And this is a different thing altogether, I think. Not altogether, but it's, it's distinct. Because I think a trad is someone, especially online, who, at least online, yearns for a more socially stable, perhaps more patriarchal, more socially conservative society. Um, they, these are the type of people that idolize, for example, the 1950s, of, uh, America in the 1950s. Again, mostly online types. Uh, and there are some of these, maybe many of these, in the Catholic traditionalist movement proper, but they are definitely not coextensive. Definitely not. In fact, I would 
gathered to say there's not an insignificant number of people who are probably socially liberal on certain things, um, things like sexual ethics, who are still deeply attracted to the old right for a variety of reasons. And in fact, there also is, you know, if you're talking about trads, you know, you might say a trad is someone who's involved in the homeschooling movement or the classical school movement. Or if you are familiar at all with the journalist Rod Dreher, Benedict Option types. All these can have, there's no necessary relationship with Catholic traditionalism, although again, they overlap. So um, we're going to be fairly narrow here, but keep in mind that traditionalism obviously has more to do than just the old right or even the language of it Latin in those terms. So having established what this movement is, more or less, not in sort of precise terms, more or less, how did this movement come about in the Catholic Church? If you're a Catholic, if you're an ordinary mass-going Catholic, you've never had any interest in this, you might think this is a kind of a little bit suspicious term. Traditionalist. Why do you need to be a traditionalist if you're Roman Catholic? Isn't the Catholic Church all about tradition? Well, yes, but this is where it comes from. What creates the, uh, what creates the traditionalist movement is the Second Vatican Council. And the Second Vatican Council, of course, uh, was famous for having to, or wanting to, engage with the modern world. <clears throat> and one of the irony, ironies of the Second Vatican Council is that its documents talk very eloquently about the uh, quote-unquote apostolate of the laity, of the role of lay people in the world to, you know, go into the world and bring the Catholic faith to people. It's ironic because the first lay movement that it actually spawned really is the traditionalist movement, because <laughs> it starts even while the council is still ongoing. Why? Because in 1963, uh, year after it opens, the council promulgates its first document, its constitution on the sacred liturgy, called Sacrosanctum Concilium. <clears throat> and this constitution basically directed the church, Pope, to uh, revise the existing liturgical rites, the existing liturgical books, the Roman Missal, the Liturgy of the Hours, and to, to uh, in a sense, update it, make it a little more accessible to people. And they, uh, they authorized uh, the church to make alterations to it, to get rid of parts of the Mass that were, you know, not as ancient as other parts of the Mass. The Old Mass is ancient, we'll get to that in a second, but they, you know, take a few things here and there, um, remove redundancies, remove what it calls useless repetitions, does the text. It also authorized the, ver the, uh, the use of vernacular in the liturgy. However, it did not say that the whole liturgy should be in the vernacular. It mandated the retention of Latin. The Latin language is to be retained. It also said that... Uh, Gregorian chant should be given pride of place in the, in the revised liturgy. And in fact, it's pretty clear if you read Sacrosanctum Concilium, it clearly envisioned no more, uh, it clearly was expecting no more than a revision of the existing missal and other liturgical books. And in fact, this was done in 1965 as the council was coming to an end. In that year, the Va Vatican issued uh, an interim missal which did most of those things. It allowed certain parts of the, of the uh, right, to, the, the missile to be said in, uh, in uh, the vernacular. 
Uh, it got rid of some later accretions that were from the late Middle Ages, you know, prayers that were added later on. It added some new prayers. But it was essentially the same rite uh, as the 1962 Missal. They were more or less or still organically connected for the most part. If things had been left there with that interim missile, this is kind of a, a quirk of history, if they had stopped there, if Paul VI had let it stop there, there would probably be no traditionalist movement today. Because at that point, you still had a missile that was revised, but it was a revision of earlier books. What happened to change this is that Paul VI in 1963 had handed over the revision of the liturgy to a commission which it's long, it's a long name it has. It's called the Commission for the Implementation of the Sacred, of the uh, Dogmatic Constitution of the, uh, of, the, of the Sacred Liturgy. Long title, which in Latin, the first word is concilium, that's what we'll call it for short. And so this commission called the concilium uh, was instructed to revise the rites. And the secretary of this commission is a man named Annibal Bonini, who becomes the driving force behind the creation of what's what we call the, uh, the, uh, the Novus Order Missae in 1969 and 70. And Annabelle Bonini was a, a liturgist, someone who had what you might say progressive ideas about the liturgy. He wanted to make, he wanted a liturgy that was more adapted to modern people, easier to understand. He's someone who had actually in his own parish had been experimenting with vernacular liturgies before the council. And in most accounts of this, the beginnings of the uh, traditionalist movement, traditionalists usually make Bunini the sort of villain of the story. And there's no doubt his ideas were much more radical than most of the council fathers were. The council fathers were probably not expecting much uh, from uh, the revision of the liturgy. In fact, before the Second Vatican Council began, the Vatican actually uh, surveyed the world's bishops and 600 of them, 600 of them uh, if I recall correctly, 600, I think it's 600, uh, replied. And the only changes they really envisioned were turning some parts, not all of them, some parts of the liturgy into the vernacular, allowing that, and then getting rid of, a, again, a few parts of the liturgy that were, you know, ritual gestures that were unnecessary, a few, par a few prayers here and there, and that's it. Bunini wanted to go much farther than this. And in fact, Paul VI also favored more revisions than, uh, than, the, uh, than perhaps the, than the council seemed to envision. And we're not really sure how many. Uh, it's very hard to tell what role Paul VI played in all of this. Paul VI was notorious for being someone who was kind of, I'm trying to put this gently, uh, undecided, wishy-washy. In any event, though, he did want to make revisions of the liturgy. And, and, and by the way, whatever the truth is, he's convinced by Bunini, maybe they're in it together, but it's, his, it's ultimately his responsibility because he allowed all this to go forward. And so what the Concilium does, though, after 1965, is they begin basically scrapping the old rite almost entirely. The structure and much of the content is essentially thrown out, and they go back to old liturgical books, from the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries, and they begin to create a, literally, a new rite. And in fact, the new missal that is promulgated first in 1969 by Paul VI, it'll be repromulgated the next year for reasons I'll get into next time, uh, is called, literally, that's called Novus Order Missae, the New Order of the Mass, and that is an accurate description. And I cannot stress this enough, 
it's worth reiterating that this was something that Sacrosanctum, Sacrosanctum Concilium uh, and the Second Vatican Council did not call for. Now, you can say it's compatible with it. It's not necessarily, you know, opposed to it. But there is no, there's no direction for this anywhere in the conciliar document. So I'm calling this the new right. There are some people, by the way, who would object to this. Um, there are people in the Vatican today, actually, who insist that, no, they're still basically the same right. Uh, and again, having familiarized myself with some of the arguments of traditionalist scholars, and there are traditionalists who are not, you know, raving online idiots. They're actually scholars. Uh, I, I think this is basically correct. It is a new right. According to one of them, Matthew Hazel, in the Old Missal, there are something like 1,269 unique prayers in the 1962 Missal. In the New Missal, um, there are 1,616 prayers. Of those prayers in the Old Missal, only about 48% make it into the new one. And that's only if you include the prayers that were cut up and then pasted into other prayers. Uh, and the prayers that were also edited and somewhat rewritten into the new one. If you exclude those, only 17% of the prayers of the old rite make it into the new one. That is to say, basically, only 17% of the old missile makes it into uh, the new one in, in its old form. And this is aside from the creation of a new liturgical calendar with a new list of saints, a new lectionary, which, you know, the one, if you're gone to the, uh, the, uh, the normal mass your whole life. It has a three-year cycle. There's none of that. It's just a one-year cycle in the old one. And then, of course, the option of celebrating in the vernacular quickly becomes standardized. Um, the uh, Vatican will give authority to Bishop's Conference to implement uh, these changes, the new liturgy, and they almost all immediately adopt uh, all vernacular, almost overnight. But probably the most... Uh, dramatic thing that they do is they alter to a certain degree the well that what they do is they add new prayer new eucharistic prayers to to the to the liturgy what are eucharistic prayers if you know what that is that's the prayer over the gifts the prayer over the bread and wine that the priest does before the elevation of the host uh, in the in the mass and this is this was a, a revolutionary act and the reason why is, is the Roman Rite had only ever had one Eucharistic prayer in its entire history, which is called the Roman Canon. It's called the Roman Canon because it's, a, it's an invocation of early popes, saints, uh, who were associated with Rome. If you don't know, by the way, when, I'm, when I use the term Roman Rite, I should have done this at the beginning, but I'll repeat myself. Uh, Roman Rite means the, what was originally the local rite of the Church of Rome, in which gradually over time became, became the the universal right of the church as a whole throughout different places. But it goes back, again, we'll get into this a little later, I guess, but it goes back to late antiquity. It's an ancient, ancient right. And so they added three, three options to this. And by doing so, the committee, the concilium, almost ensured that the Roman canon is almost never used uh, because it's one of the longest prayers. It's the longest prayer of the four Eucharistic prayers in the Missal. And because, unlike in the old missal, if you've never been to the extraordinary form, you'll never hear it because it's, it's spoken silently by, silently by the priest at the altar. In the new, new rite, you have to say it aloud, uh, and because it's so long, most priests never use it. And that's significant because, of course, the Roman canon is, it, it may be the oldest liturgical prayer outside of Scripture, essentially, in the Roman rite, maybe even in any rite. It's really old. 
And of course, it's Roman. It's identified with what is the Roman rite. So this, all of this represents a serious break with tradition. But aside from the new missal, uh, it's also, all of these changes are also accompanied within a few years by acts of what can only be described as, you know, metaphorical most of the time, but sometimes actual violent acts of iconoclasm in which pastors, you know, got rid of and sometimes just out and out broke up and destroyed things like high altars, altar rails, other liturgical items now considered useless, vestments, you know, sacred vessels that were too, considered to be too expensive, too, you know, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. They were, they were too, too beautiful, I guess, until you get rid of them. Even though, and I should maybe, maybe be fair here, the Concilium, uh, and certainly not Vatican II, necessitated none of this. They didn't give directions to any of this. But people just took these ideas. They took the idea. Once you change the rite itself, once you change the missal, it seemed like a lot to a lot of people, anything goes. And pretty much anything did. Um, new table, new altars were erected, of course. That's where they got rid of the high altars. Uh, table altars, which of course were flat and looked like, oh, they looked like a, a table at which you eat a, a meal, right? And so this makes the Mass seem much more or less like a sacrifice, like it does in the older rite, if you know what I'm talking about, at a high altar. And of course as well, and this was not mandated by the Council at all, uh, the priests began to turn and face the congregation. All of a sudden, you know, things overnight are changed almost beyond recognition. This is, uh, I'm not even mentioning, of course, the almost immediate insertion of things like folk music and pop music and occasionally jazz into the liturgy, replacing older hymns and Gregorian chant. Just to sum it up, what happens within a few years' time is that it looks like, if you lived through this, if you went through the, the 60s, if you were born, you went to going to Mass in the early 60s, and you lived through these changes into the 1970s, it would look like that the religion you worshipped was no longer there, or religion you knew was no longer there. It looked like an entire new religion had been sort of foisted on people in many places. And again, we don't know how widespread most of the, the, the really wild stuff was, and there's a lot of wild stuff going on in the 1970s, especially in the church, but it was traumatic for a lot of people. And this is what will, of course, spur um, traditionalists to try to fight to keep the old mass. Now, the question I want to address here just briefly is, why did Paul VI and the Concilium feel the need to create a new religion? Now, I want to state something here before I answer that question. One thing we can say about this is that it is in, it's within the Pope's right to create a new liturgy. He has the authority to do that. One of the questions we're going to get to in the course of our, these podcasts is, does he have a right to abrogate old ones that are as ancient as the Roman rite? I think that's a real question. It's one of the reasons I have a problem with Pope Francis's motu proprio. I think, it's a, I think it's a genuine question to be asked, but we'll get to that. But you should not, you should not for a second doubt the validity of a new liturgy. Um, the wisdom of it's another matter, but... Why did he do it? Why did he feel the need to do this? There are basically two reasons that I can tell. One, and this does go back to the council in some ways, the council was about being pastoral in some ways. Many people refer to it as a pastoral council. John XXIII referred to it as a pastoral council. We're not going to talk about dogma. We're going to adapt the church's practice and some of its, you know, um, 
some of its its rights, its stuff, it's not dogmatic for pastoral reasons. Meaning, we're going to adapt things like the liturgy for modern man, for contemporary man. People actually talked like this back in the 1960s. And what that means is, modern man can't understand archaic things like Latin. They can't understand, you know, an idea of, I don't know what the, I don't know where to put it, but old things that are hard to understand, that are out of place in a new world, in a new world, need to, re need to be replaced. Uh, modern man doesn't like mystery so much. What he likes is, is accessibility, understanding. That's why I have to get rid of the Latin. Uh, modern man doesn't like hierarchy. He doesn't like the fact that, you know, the priest is turning his back to him and sort of looking at the altar. That's why he has to turn around. Uh, so we can all be equal and we can all have a, you know, a community before the altar and stuff like this. There's also a sense among people like Bonini and Paul VI that the liturgy needs to be more flexible. <clears throat> the old rite is very, very, very... That's what I'm looking for. It's very certain. It's very stable. You know what you're getting every single time. You could call it rigid, if you like, or immobile, static. They wanted a liturgy that was more dynamic. They could be adapted to different, you know, cultures, you know, in Africa or Asia or whatever, or adapted to different circumstances. They thought that was a good thing. And in fact, Paul VI will talk about this in some of his general audiences in 1968 and 69, 70, and through early 70s, about the sacrifices Catholics will need to make in order to embrace the new liturgy. He actually has one. It's a famous one. You can go look it up where he basically says, yes, I know we're getting rid of this sacred language and getting rid of this, it's, Latin's been part of our heritage for, you know, 1,500 years or more. But we need to get rid of it because we need to, it's, we have to make that, sac we have to sacrifice our heritage for the sake of modern man. That's the sort of idea behind this. If we sacrifice this old stuff, modern society will embrace the church again. That's basically the trade-off in that regard they want to make. That's one reason. The other reason is ecumenical. <laughs> Paul VI was very, very supportive of the ecumenical movement, especially uh, after the Second Vatican Council gave its imprimatur to this. And so one of his concerns was to make the liturgy less forbidding to Protestants, to non-Catholics. Uh, a friend of his named Jean Guitton, who was a writer, gave an interview back in the early 1990s in which he claimed that Paul VI told him that one of his goals with the reform of the liturgy was to make it less Catholic. That the liturgy as it stood before the Second Vatican Council was too Catholic. It was too, you know, too Roman, too Catholic, too... I don't know what. Uh, it was too much, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, but that was what he said. And the idea, again, the idea being if you sort of get rid of some of the, the you know, tone down the, the uh, Marian devotion, if you tone down the notion of sacrifice, it'll attract Protestants and other non-Catholics. That seems to have been, as far as I can tell, the official reasons for this. Having said all this, traditionalists, sometimes of the more excitable sorts, will, will make the accusation that there were there were members of the hierarchy or members of the, you know, liturgical establishment who really wanted to do a new rite because they really wanted to, use the colloquial term, change the faith. They wanted to have a new faith. 
And I have to say, I, I, when I first began to study this question, I thought they were basically being conspiratorial. I don't think that was the. I don't think that was Paul VI necessarily his his idea. I don't think most of. I don't think Bunini thought this, but it's pretty clear that at least some Catholic, call them progressives back then, and definitely some today, see in the new right, saw in the new right then and do now, a symbol of a new faith. In other words, there are some people who thought that by changing the liturgy they could get rid of parts of the old the old parts of the faith they didn't like. I think that's actually something at play here. Uh, even though, again, I'm still, you know, uh, about the conspiratorial part of it, but it's not necessarily a crazy thing to believe. So, you have this, you know, process by which, you know, by 1970 you had this new liturgy. So who are the people that, are, that basically try to keep the old Mass alive? As I mentioned before, it's, it's laymen at the origins of this. Laymen and women, I should say. And many of the, much of the leadership of the early traditionalist movement were, was, was lay. And in fact, the first organization that's formed, that can be described as part of this movement, is a lay movement in 1964, before the council ends, called Una Voce. And Una Voce is a society of lay people. Uh, as you're going to see, it's, it's, it's basically open to anyone who loves the old mass. It's still, it's still in existence. It's, it's one of the more prominent lay organizations devoted to this. It was formed in 1964 in Norway by a doctor who reached out to people in France and it spread there and spread to other countries, a bunch of countries by the end of 1965. And it was first founded in 1964 when, this is before the interim liturgy's been, been, uh, been, um, been promulgated. At that point, it was founded only for the maintenance of Latin in the liturgy. Because at that point, nobody knew that the Vatican was planning to create a new rite. Uh, it was kind of a surprise when they did that in 1969. It's only, only when they get winded this by the late 60s that it changes its purpose and becomes about saving the old rite as a whole. And it's worth noting again, it, there'll be other people, we'll get to this next time, but other organizations, I should say. Until 1970, there was no pre until 1970 in the formation of the Society of St. Pius X. There was no priestly organization uh, involved in this. It is for the first half decade or so, uh, again, laymen sort of pushing for this. So keep that in mind. <clears throat> now, who were these early leaders? Annabelle Bonini, the liturgist and head of the Concilium, uh, complained several times that those who were agitating to keep the old mass alive were elitists. They were people who cared more about culture than evangelization. In other words, they liked Latin because it was fancy, it was sophisticated, and they didn't care if ordinary people couldn't understand the liturgy. That's his complaint. Others accused these, uh, these uh, traditionalists of being nostalgists for a vanished world. They were, again, this is, kind of goes back to the thing I mentioned about with, with France. They're longing for an old world where Catholicism was dominant, and this is just, you know, you're just, you're just pining for, for medieval Christendom. You're a sad, pathetic creature who doesn't, won't, just won't get with the program, just won't, won't accept modernity, and therefore you're a contemptible human being or something like that. Obviously, I don't like these, these accusations very much, obviously, but, however, despite the prejudiced nature of these claims, there is a little bit of truth to, th to this... Um, 
to these to these uh, characterizations, because I think there is a type among these early leaders that at least fascinates me anyway. Because one of the things that's happening in the 1960s is that, is that a new a new leadership is taking control in the church. Paul VI, when he becomes pope, basically removes everybody who had any connection eventually after the first few years with his predecessors and puts new people in position. He reorganizes the curia. And so it's, it is a people who have a, a strong sense of they're a new regime and they're going to do things better than the old regime did. And I mention that because a lot of the people, just to give you, there's three or four characteristics that fascinate me here. A lot of the early, early leadership, for example, many of them, came from aristocratic backgrounds. Eric de, uh, de Saventham, who's a name you'll hear a lot in the next few podcasts, Eric de Saventham, how do you pronounce it? Eric de Saventham was a German nobleman who eventually becomes the first president of Una Voce International. Very important figure. Plays a prominent role uh, in the traditionalist movement. Dietrich von Hildebrand, the philosopher, uh, also uh, German. Uh, von indicates uh, noble descent. His father was actually a noble. It's not an old noble family, but comes from that background. Was raised in, in Florence. Nero Capone is an Italian count who was also a, a prestigious canon lawyer. He'll become the uh, defender in canon law for people like Marcel Lefebvre later on and other people, other priests, defending their right to save the old mass. Uh, Michel de Saint-Pierre is a Frenchman uh, novelist and writer. Uh, is also a marquis, if I'm not mistaken. And I could uh, go on. There's probably you know close to a dozen of these people who were involved in the early movement who are aristocrats. So that's part of where the accusation of elitism comes from. Another part of this is that a lot of artists and writers were attracted to the old mass and believed in its superiority. Uh, I mentioned Michel de Saint-Pierre as a novelist. Another novelist, uh, Italian Tito Cassini, was also uh, involved in this, criticizing the new mass and just trying to support the old one. Uh, Jean Madeiran, who was a, a French writer, again, another um, um, author, uh, involved in this. Uh, Brent Bozell Jr. is an American. He's the co-founder of the conservative magazine National Review. was also a traditionalist who supported the old mass, uh, as well as many other people um, who were also um, um, writers and artists um, were involved in this initially. And another characteristic that's interesting is that there, many of the early leaders outside France, anyway, not in France, but outside of France, were converts. Dietrich von Hildebrand, convert from Lutheranism. Eric de Saventham, convert from Lutheranism. Michael Davies, who is a Welshman, uh, someone I'll have uh, occasion to mention going forward a lot. Michael Davies was a, a Welsh Baptist who converted before Vatican II, became a teacher at a Catholic school, will become one of the big defenders of, of Marcel Lefebvre later on in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, Brent Bozell Jr. was not Jr. Brent, Bo Brent Bozell was also a con convert. Hugh Fraser uh, was the um, as we'll see next time started a, a newspaper which which called Approaches, which was a became a vehicle for traditionalist thought. Fraser was a former communist, an atheist, uh, became a convert. Um, and even if you extend the term traditionalist, if you get to go to America, there's a what you might call a traditionalist educational movement in America in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, I'm thinking of people like John Sr., if you know this name. John Sr. was, again, atheist, communist, converts to Catholicism, 
taught at uh, Cornell and other places before moving to the University of Kansas in the 1970s and starting the uh, International uh, Integrated Humanities Program there. I won't go into that in detail, but there's several other branches, but there's converts involved in all of this. And I mention all these characteristics, um, not to sort of agree with their, their critics here, but to point out that most of these people, if you think about the 1960s, because the 1960s was an era of cultural change, cultural evolution, and most of these people are going to be outsiders to the new establishment in the church, that post-Vatican II establishment which takes control. They're on the outside looking in. They, um, you know, they, don't, uh, they don't see society in the same way. I think that's why they, they are so quick to criticize in some ways. They see some of the things going on that aren't quite right about the liturgical reform. And they are more broadly, most of these people are also opposed to a lot of the social and cultural upheavals of the 1960s as well. In that sense, Bonini and some of his confreres were not totally wrong. They are kind of, uh, you know, marginal figures in a way, but interesting figures. You know, aristocrats are on the way out in terms of, have, are already gone basically, they have no political power anymore. So I think they can see, better see the value of the old right, as do artists and writers who are more sensitive to things like, you know, ritual and symbol and things like that. And of course, as well, converts who, again, they come from outside, so they have to make a real, you know, uh, effort to understand these things. So I think that's why, again, most Catholics who went through the change of the 1960s, as traumatic as they were, accepted it. At least the ones that stayed, stayed in the church, some just left. Um, partly out of habit, right? They were used to just trusting Rome. And that's why there's a difference here with some of these people. <laughs> One last thing to mention about, the, about these people, about their, uh, about their, you know, who they were, this leadership. Um, there's a difference in the early lay French leadership. That's the lay, lay, I just mentioned, most of the people I just mentioned are lay leaders outside of France. The difference in France is, is, is uh, historical. <laughs> And goes back to the French Revolution, because from you know the uh, the end of the French Revolution basically up to today, there are elements in French life which which are kind of what's the word I'm looking for? I guess the word is reactionary, and by this I mean people who you know are monarchists, others who are nationalists, extreme ones. Um, they're also you know thrown in altar types who favor a union of church and state with sympathies that sometimes blend in with a purely theological Catholic anti-modernism, and that did so long before the Second Vatican Council. That's the main thing. In other words, there's something, there's almost a traditionalist movement that predates the Council in France. And to give you an example of what I'm talking about, <clears throat> early in the 20th century in France, a right-wing politician by the name of, and thinker named Charles Morat, uh, formed an organization called L'Action Française, French Action, which is a sort of right-wing nationalist movement, which is thoroughly secular. He's actually an atheist, was Morat. But Morat was both a monarchist and someone who admired the Catholic Church for social and cultural reasons. And he made, he reached out to Catholics, and a lot of Catholics joined his movement. Eventually, because of its secular nature, Pius XI in 1927, the Pope at the time, condemned it and most Catholics wound up leaving the organization. 
However, and this is the key point about this, is that many in the early French traditionalist movement, many laymen, were actually associated with it, had been part of it when it was uh, still in existence. And I mention this because there is this streak running through, especially French traditionalism, of what uh, sometimes French Catholics call integrism. Integrism, again, is that idea that the state should be officially Catholic. This is the idea that, you know, uh, that goes back to a lot of things in the 19th century, but it goes back to a yearning to sort of remake France into a Catholic country again, essentially. This is also sometimes called in the English-speaking world integralism, which we'll probably come back to before the end of this, this series. And I mention this because this political orientation, which is not, by the way, it's not really central even to the French Catholic traditionalist movement. It's still mostly about the Mass. It's there, and it's sometimes used against those who favor the old Latin Mass to tar them with the, with the, you know, with the stigma of being reactionaries, being dangerous white-wing reactionaries, you know, uh, lumping them in with supporters of the Vichy regime during World War II, fascism, stuff like this. Again, they are, they are there on the fringes. Again, for the most part, I don't think that's true, even though there's a streak of that going through it. Um, I mention this partly because this political angle is partly what gives the issue of traditionalism a much more serious charge in Europe than, say, elsewhere, than especially in the United States. It has no connection with that here uh, in the United States, whereas it does in, the, um, in, the, uh, in Europe for that reason. So, to sum up, you have Vatican II initiating changes, some of them not necessarily mandated by the Council, which uh, lead to a sort of practical break on the ground, which motivates these people, these early leadership, uh, lay leadership of the, uh, of the traditionalist movement, to begin to agitate <clears throat> for the retention of the old mass. And I need to stress here, uh, you know, when we're talking about this, what really unites these traditionalists is not just the creation of the new right, which was shocking enough, especially the way it was implemented. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to understand now, but the Second Vatican Council pushed this idea of collegiality that there was going to be deference to bishops and the Pope wasn't going to act like a like an absolute monarch that he had in the past, and yet uh, the the new right was promulgated on his authority alone. And in a short span of time. So it was jarring in and of itself just for doing this. All that being said, what really, really sparks the movement is the realization uh, by these early um, lay leaders of this movement was that they were going to suppress the old right. Now, Rome, it is true, as Pope Francis mentions in his motto proprio, abolished certain local Western rites that were less than 200 years old after the Council of Trent. But they allowed more ancient rites to persist, as they still do today. There is the Ambrosian rite, which is associated with the Cathedral of Milan. There is the Mozarabic rite uh, with the, uh, at the uh, cathedrals of Toledo and Salamanca. There is the rite of Braga, the Cathedral of Braga in Portugal. And there are at least four different rites that are peculiar to religious orders, like the Dominicans and the Carmelites. There's a couple of others, if I'm not mistaken. But the Roman Rite is different. It is the by far the oldest of all the Western liturgies. Popes since the 5th century have made the claim that it goes back to the apostolic tradition. 
And it's true that popes have revised it in the past, moving, moving or adding parts of the missile, etc., etc. But its structure has been largely unchanged since the, uh, since the 7th century or so. And it's thus a living link of the early church. And for most of these traditionalists, this is what they could not accept, these early ones. The idea that this unique heritage, going back to the ancient church, was something that was irreplaceable, and they just couldn't get rid of it. Put it another way, and I'm putting words in their mouths here. Their, their idea was that it's not just doctrine, it's not just formal dogmatic pronouncements, but something like the liturgy, which is how most people encounter the faith, if it's that so much a part of, you know, um, uh, has that kind of link to the ancient world like this, has to be part of what, you, what used to be called Big T tradition, the capital T. That is to say, it's not something you can abolish. It's so a part of the church's life. It has to exist somewhere. And this is at the heart of the dispute, right? This is, this is what's going on right now, you know, what... You know, isn't the Pope so supposed to uphold tradition? Then why is he trying to suppress it? Right? And so, and this is what's going to be at issue in the early, uh, early part of the uh, history of the traditionalist movement as well, which, again, is still kind of a, a, going, uh, a going issue, obviously, with uh, recent events. And so next time, I'll begin the, the narrative proper with the story of how a few laymen managed to appeal to Paul VI and keep him from entirely suppressing the old Roman rite in the years following the Second Vatican Council. Thank you uh, for listening, and uh, uh, be on the lookout in the next couple of days for the next episode. Take care and God bless.